From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Today, we're zooming in on Chicago, the country's third largest and one of the most diverse cities, and a city that has been a blueprint for housing segregation, still deeply felt all across aspects of city life today. While the discriminatory practice of racial redlining was officially outlawed in 1968, still today, for every $1 banks loan in Chicago's white neighborhoods, they invest just 12 cents in the city's black neighborhoods and 13 cents in Latino areas, according to a 2020 study by WBEZ and City Bureau. A typical household's wealth in the richest area of Chicago is 206 times higher than a typical household's wealth in the poorest area. This continued housing inequity lies at the crux of the city's ongoing struggles against gun and gang violence, unemployment, and homelessness, but are often overlooked. The system was designed to create these problems, so we shouldn't be surprised or scoff in reaction. It's time to learn how so many Chicagoans were set up to struggle, and how we can all be a part of undoing the legacy of racism that pervades the city's map. Here to talk with us about Chicago's infamous housing history, ongoing consequences, and nationwide influence is Mike Amezgua, Associate History Professor at Georgetown University and author of Making Mexican Chicago, From Post-War Settlement to the Age of Gentrification. Mike, welcome to At Liberty. Hi, Kendall. Thanks for having me today. So Making Mexican Chicago is such an important book, and it really captures the multi-ethnic character of Chicago that has fought to survive since the post-war era. Although now 65% of Chicago's residents identify as Black, Latino, or Asian, it remains one of the most segregated in America. Because we don't often discuss housing on this podcast, could you give our listeners just a high-level, quick primer on how segregation itself is an important social determinant for broader life outcomes? Absolutely. Almost all of our life opportunities have so much to do with where we grew up what our zip code is, what opportunities we have uh, as young people in America. And um, uh, Chicago is uh, a very important city when it comes to the kind of early crafting of housing inequality, housing policies that emerged uh, in the 1930s and that continue to impact where people live, why Chicago is so segregated, and um, what kinds of investments or patterns of disinvestment exist in the city today. Um, you know, we recently had a kind of big conversation on Twitter over uh, some of the youth crime that has uh, been um, talked about in the media in Chicago. But uh, that conversation ought to be a historical conversation, not about uh, always about the crime that youth are partaking in, but rather the uh, lack of opportunities that youth have had in the city of Chicago, the the long legacies of disinvestment for jobs, um, uh, housing inequality, recreation inequality. Mm. In your book, you spotlight that two of the major tools of modern segregation find their roots in Chicago, redlining and racial covenants. They're central practices in the history of housing in America. First, can you detail what redlining and racial covenants are for people who might not know? 
And then can you walk us through some of their development in Chicago? Redlining was a form of color coding and uh, detailing to potential lenders um, where there might be risk in lending uh, for housing, for uh, mortgage uh, uh, assignments. Um, There was all sorts of color coding that um, surveyors created uh, as part of um, a kind of national uh, project by the federal government to uh, create a kind of mapping system that could tell the government where they can finance or where they can back mortgage lending. And so the red shading or the red lining uh, became the most kind of deleterious uh, uh, um, communicator of of warning, warning, risk. You know, this was the red flag for lending. And um, typically a surveyor was assigned particular neighborhoods across urban America and uh, where there was uh, either a kind of dimension of multiracial uh, residents or multi-ethnic uh, dimension, that typically would have um, told that surveyor to market uh, as shaded in red. That was uh, the highest um, uh, uh, liability in terms of lending. Um, the restrictive covenant uh, comes a little earlier uh, in the 1920s, um, really um, born in Chicago, really uh, mobilized by the Chicago Real Estate Board to um, the, put it into the contract as to prohibiting the purchasing uh, of homes by black families in particular neighborhoods. And so this would have disallowed a white homeowner to uh, to sell to a black uh, home buyer, uh, and and it was written into the cr- contract itself. The restrictive covenant gets outlawed in the late 1940s in Chicago, and then later across uh, America. But uh, but it lasted for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, even a local news station said that modern segregation was as much a product of Chicago as deep dish pizza which I think is notable. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, redlining especially has received attention in the last few years as disparities in healthcare, education, and income to the state map directly onto the homeowners alone corporation maps of the 1940s, 1950s in many cities, including Chicago. When Mexicans first emigrated to Chicago, where were the areas redlining and racism confined them to? And what were these areas like? I love that question. That's such a smart question because it really gets to those initial um, settlement points for the Mexican community and their initial link to areas that are already um, uh, considered to be problematic in terms of lending. So the first waves of Mexican migrants arrive in the late 19-teens. They are initially recruited by uh, some of the most prominent industries in Chicago at the time, steel, uh, meatpacking, and railroad work. And so if you can imagine these three industries, these are industries that are um, kind of... uh, hugging um, Lake Michigan. They are on the south side. They are um, in northwest Indiana. So they are industries that are kind of along the lake. 
and in 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 areas that are very industrial. Um, and uh, Mexicans took residence literally in between the kind of growing racial segregation of African Americans and and white Chicagoans. So they they kind of take that in between space, that liminal space. Um, and and these areas are already um, uh, considered not the most um, beautiful. These are not uh, middle class homes. In fact, some of the first places that Mexican immigrants live in are um, box cars, uh, actual railroad cars that have been converted temporarily into housing quarters for uh, Mexican laborers, um, and so. The, that is that's the kind of initial settlement in the 19 teens and 1920s. Mm. Um, I want to talk about two different stories from the book. You talk about like in addition to redlining and covenants, cycles of underinvestment, poverty, urban renewal, gentrification, and displacement caused the Mexican community to be jostled through neighborhoods and to find new ones over time. There are two neighborhoods I want to talk about in particular, Little Village and Pilsen. The stories you tell of both of these neighborhoods are incredible because they show how insidious the discrimination was, but also how innovative the community became in response. Little Village came together in part due to displacement caused by the University of Illinois, Chicago. I was wondering if you could take us back to the impetus to create that new neighborhood. Uh, definitely, yes. Uh, when you think of Chicago's Mexican communities, uh, you, you have to talk about Pilsen and Little Village. These are the, the kind of crown jewel neighborhoods of the Mexican uh, diaspora in the Midwest. Um, Little Village is uh, the result, really, of uh, like, as you said, the displacement out of the kind of near West Side community, which is just west of the loop of downtown Chicago, this becomes a highly coveted area by the city, by downtown business elites that seek to remake it as part of this bigger super loop uh, that that would bring in a, a more kind of white collar workforce, perhaps more more tax yielding um, people and property. This is the home of the University of Illinois at Chicago, and of course, the the flip side is that it displaces so many people. Uh, of course, not just Mexicans, but Puerto Ricans, African Americans, and and ethnic whites as well. Um, but it creates an opportunity for the real estate industry that's paying attention uh, as to how to uh, perhaps use the displacement of Mexicans as an opportunity to sell homes or rent homes to this displaced diaspora. It doesn't mean that the entire real estate industry is open to this, but a few kind of enterprising real estate agents are looking at this as an opportunity. One of them is Anita Villarreal, one of the first Latina real estate agents in Chicago, who was displaced herself out of the near west side and who, uh, newly armed with a real estate license, begins to uh, try to buy and, and sell property in, in Pilsen and in Little Village. Um, uh, now, it wasn't easy. Uh, the real estate industry in these neighborhoods is trying to stop her. Uh, she wasn't the only one. There were other kind of ethnic white leaders in the community that also saw an opportunity in opening up South Lawndale to Mexican immigrants. One of them was uh, Richard Dolage, 
who also decided uh, that uh, that he would, as a real estate agent, open up uh, certain parts of the neighborhood to Mexican immigrants that that were, for the most part, cash-carrying Mexican laborers uh, looking to rent or to buy a home. One of the things that Richard Dolage is known for is actually changing the branding of South Lawndale. He changes the name of the neighborhood uh, in response to the uh, increasing black settlement of uh, of, uh, of black residents in the west side of Chicago in North Lawndale, which previously was a Jewish neighborhood. Um, he, you know, he tries to disentangle or disassociate South Lawndale from North Lawndale and give it a kind of new name, calls it Little Village, to kind of reflect back to the, the early Eastern and Central European villages in in, uh, in, in, in the Czech Republic, in Poland. Um, but, but even when he's doing that, the old ethnic white communities, they are leaving Little Village in droves. And so Anita Villarreal enters the neighborhood, uh, re, re, rebrands it herself into La Villita and begins to develop a kind of sales pitch for that displaced Mexican diaspora, uh, to say, hey, this may not look like a Mexican community, but it will be a Mexican community. I can sell you this bungalow home here. I can rent to rent you an apartment over here. There will be supermarkets here, taquerias, panaderias. And so she really kind of uh, banks on a future of a Mexican neighborhood uh, early on and, and, and really uh, turns it into a profitable business for herself. So Anita Villarreal is such an interesting character, and she's very prominent in the book. When we think about white flight as a phenomenon, we think about divestment. But I really appreciate that she actually saw an opportunity for revitalization. And you say Anita shrewdly sold what we might call a white flight script to these anxious white homeowners. And the little village was kind of seen as this racial barrier between the white neighborhoods and the black neighborhoods, which is very interesting to me. How do you see this dynamic play out in the relationship between the Mexican and black communities today? Yeah. So, you know, what Anita was doing in the 1960s, uh, which was uh, opening up uh, re restricted neighborhoods, right? Uh, these were kind of staunchly white neighborhoods that were not only were they leery of uh, the presence of Mexican immigrants in their communities. But of course, they were deeply mobilized against African-Americans moving into their neighborhoods. And, uh, we, we, you know, sometimes we forget that Chicago Southwest Side and Little Village included was the site of, of a kind of counter civil rights movement, meaning that uh, these were very organized ethnic white leaders that were uh, challenging the state and the city to uh, to stop measures for open housing or fair housing ordinances. So um, you, you we need that history to understand the kind of the, the culture within these communities, right? So when Anita is coming in, she's trying to open up these neighborhoods, but she's also kind of dealing with a, a, a deeply entrenched anti-blackness and perhaps even participating in that anti-blackness because um, she's she's trying to buy homes from anxious white families and then turning around and selling them to Mexican immigrants. Uh, and, and she was sued all the time for that by 
uh, uh, white uh, community organizations, uh, and and she was protested and she was called a blockbuster. Um, I think, uh, of course, Chicago remains deeply segregated, and um, there is a kind of discourse around um, uh, the differences between kind of Latino segregation and Black segregation. In Latino uh, communities, they're mostly um, uh, places that have tons of restaurants, tons of supermarkets, uh, that's not the case in, in many Southside Black Chicago areas. The lack of, you know, affordable foods in Black communities in Chicago is a telling sign that there is a longer, deeper, deeply entrenched practice of, of, of money segregation in these communities. You know, if, if it doesn't make financial sense for many of these corporations uh, to to place a, a supermarket in a black community, they they won't do it, right? So um, and so, I think that 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 kind of um, that kind of takeaway uh, transcends over to the real estate market too. Um, in, in that um, now, black Chicago spaces are always uh, right for segregate for gentrification as well, right? I mean, Bronzeville is a place with a lot of uh, new swanky condos, uh, but it but it maintains a kind of black creative base, which I think makes it uh, interesting and 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 worthy of more study, so we can understand who is being displaced in these uh, in the in these in these places. But I think that there is a. Um, uh, Something that we ought to understand fundamentally a lot more about how uh, gentrification and value and uh, the difference between black spaces and Latino spaces enters into the real estate market and into the buying and selling of neighborhoods. Thank you so much for that, Mike. The second neighborhood story that I want to highlight is that of Pilsen. You depict how Pilsen has fought off gentrification since its development into the city's largest Mexican neighborhood beginning in the 1960s. Can you tell us about Pilsen and its history? Let me just say a few things about Pilsen. Pilsen, which was an older community, um, and, and actually the community that receives the most displaced Mexican residents, more so than Little Village, um, uh, has a, a kind of um, more of a becomes more of a site of contestation, and what I mean by that is that residents there uh, become weary of, of the federal government and the city entering uh, into any aspect that tries to uh, dictate what buildings they're going to knock down, what community they're going to um, bulldoze, and so the the Pilsen uh, Mexican American community develop a much more, uh, uh, I would say, resistant attitude toward uh, city intervention into their lives. And so uh, this is a site that becomes a kind of mecca for community control, uh, a mecca for the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, a community that really begins to dictate the terms of their own community to City Hall. Uh, they develop a, a really oppositional kind of consciousness against Mayor Daley, uh, in contrast to Little Village that begins to become the place Mayor Daley likes to visit. 
uh, to promote his platform to Mexican Americans. Pilsen is is uh, enemy territory for Mayor Daley in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, Pilsen is such an interesting neighborhood. What is so striking about Pilsen is this power of resistance. Political resistance is in a, it's a hotbed, as you mentioned, and that what's the legacy of the of community organizing in Pilsen? It is a very complex legacy, uh, but also a very rich one. Very early on in the 1950s, there is an organization that gets created called the Pilsen Neighbors Community Council. This is created by um, what I would call liberal whites that live in the neighborhood and um, are trying to um, offer an alternative to urban renewal, which they see as very dangerous for their community. But over time, as the neighborhood itself is changing demographically, the Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant residents of the community do not feel represented by Pilsen Neighbors Community Council. And so by the mid to late 1960s, they take over the organization and they reclaim it as a Mexican-centric organization. They keep the name Pilsen Neighbors Community Council, but they adorn their letterheads with the symbols of the Chicano movement, Mesoamerican symbols, and a kind of platform that whatever they choose to do for their community will always keep in mind the kind of working class Mexican immigrant um, uh, dynamics of the community itself, right? So it, it becomes a very militant organization uh, that is uh, rooted in community control, meaning that they're influenced uh, by national community control movements happening in New York, happening uh, in Texas, in which uh, local resident groups are saying, uh, we want a better school in our community. We want better parks. We want more um, uh, resources coming from the city uh, that draws from our taxes, right? And, and in that sense, Pilsen has a very strong identity of itself, as a Mexican community uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, um, that has a kind of community control philosophy. And so when uh, when we're talking about, um, say, like uh, displacement by kind of wealthy developers or gentrification in the 1970s or 80s, uh, it really runs up against this community that already has a long history of not only researching who's doing what, but also developing a counter response. Um, this community stops uh, Mayor Daly from creating what was called uh, Chicago 21, which was a kind of master plan in 1973 to remake Pilsen uh, into kind of an extension of downtown uh, to build a lot of condos, to make the kind of south branch of the Chicago River, this kind of riverway for condo dwellers to get to work in downtown. So Pilsen stops that. Yeah. It's currently gentrifying and its, in, its history is at risk for sure. 
Absolutely. Between 2011 and 2020, Chicago's 60608 zip code witnessed a median household income rise over 43%, which is the largest increase in the entire city. And it also coincided with a 17% decrease in its Latino population and a 28% increase in its white population. Yes. So we're seeing this happen right now. Um, What do efforts look like to resist You know, the efforts are kind of multiple uh, and they are uh, not all of the same kind of mindset. Uh, There are long time, you you asked me about the legacy of community development and and community control. There are long time organizations in the community, uh, such as Pilsen Neighbors, such as the Resurrection Project, which is a faith based housing developing a nonprofit. These are kind of longtime organizations that, that have had their own kind of answers to stabilizing the presence of working class people in Pilsen. Um, but, but, but there are newer organizations and, and perhaps even uh, more kind of um, progressive slash militant organizations that have Uh, that have not, that have said these organizations aren't doing enough. The older kind of legacy organizations haven't actually defeated or stopped gentrification. And so, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of kind of younger progressive organizations that are literally, uh, trying to, uh, shame. They're using kind of shame methods or campaigns to shame, uh, housing developers or business owners that, um, that are displacing older uh, working class Latino owned businesses. So I I think that from my perspective as a historian, um, when I say that, that in the past there's been an attempt to stop gentrification in the seventies and in the eighties, really what I'm seeing is that it was obviously a, a victory then, but, but really it only kind of hit pause on it for a little while. And, and as you point out, uh, uh what what's happened now in the past 20 years is really an inequitable form of displacement i mean you mentioned the percentages of 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 the latino population which is decreasing in pilsen and in that zip code so i think that it's uh, it's looking like a losing battle right now if really what we're looking for is a community that creates stable housing conditions for working class residents Thank you so much for that. I think that's really important to talk about how this is happening right now. Are there ways that you think that we can invest in neighborhoods like Pilsen without displacing the community? That's a really good question and and one that I get a lot. I think that um, ultimately what we're talking about here is um, capitalism and money and value. And sometimes in this country, um, uh, the social determinants of who has more value than others uh, has a lot to do with who they are, uh, meaning their race, ethnicity, how they speak, how they look, right? So I think that um, right now where the money is flowing in terms of investment in Pilsen is mostly to um, venture capitalists or uh, restaurant corporations that are looking to uh, bring business and housing development into Pilsen. Uh, uh, if you are a working class family in Pilsen today and you go to, I mean, name your bank, 
um, uh, and you're looking for a loan in Pilsen, chances are you're not going to get that loan. And so uh, I think for that reason, um, it, it's it's really an uphill battle in terms of finding opportunities to uh, create uh, uh, uh you know, housing or livable uh, infrastructure in in a community that's so hot in terms of real estate in Pilsen. Um, so I think it means that any kind of investment that's happening in a community like Pilsen right now um, it is contributing in some form or fashion to uh, a working class, middle class displacement. Thank you so much for that. You know, coming out of the conversation we're having about Pilsen and how to invest in community without displacing it. Given all that we've spoken about and all of the loud and then more quiet and insidious ways people of color have been implicated in this system to really lessen their power and opportunity in the city of Chicago through defining where and why and how they settle, how do you tie this all together to help people better understand Chicago as the city as it is today, especially in the context of a lot of the outsider naysaying um, and critics about, you know, the presence of violence in the city today? Yeah. I mean, you know, what I would say to anybody looking to to understand Chicago today, we can't look at these things in a vacuum. They are connected to these longer patterns of uh, of segregation, of housing inequality, um, uh, you know, the environmental racism that we read about in the newspaper is, is often uh, cited and placed in black and brown communities in Chicago, right? Communities where um, these uh, industries feel like um, there's less of a voice, there's less of a, of, of, of a kind of a political clout in these areas, right? And I think that, um, and, and, and simply that, that's just not true. I mean, these communities are very vocal and very well organized and uh, often have their own kind of counter response or reports to the kind of, uh, environmental degradation and toxins that are released in their communities. Um, but, but part of their critique, uh, on the part of these grassroots organizations is that it comes from a long history of disinvestment in their neighborhoods. And so uh, I think for any person that wants to understand Chicago today, and I think it serves again as a great example for understanding urban America, is that um, it has to do with, uh, again, earlier practices of discrimination in housing and opportunities. Um, you know, the, let's take, for instance, Pilsen. It has a, a high school, uh, Benito Juarez, uh, that is, um, an, an example of that community control fight in the 1970s. The community, parents, uh, mothers, uh, fought for that high school when that community didn't have a high school there. Um, and, uh, now, um, whose high school is it going to be? I mean, these, uh, the high school was intended for the, the, the children of Mexican immigrants, of working class parents and families. And, um, and this community asset is now at the crossroads of a major, uh, socioeconomic change in Pilsen, right? So what will happen to these community assets? that black and brown Chicagoans have fought for for the last 50 years as they enter the hands of of wealthier 
uh, folks that are moving in. And I think that that's also part of the conversation that we ought to have, uh, not just in Chicago, but everywhere, you know, Philadelphia, New York City, Los Angeles, um, places that have had a long history of disinvestment and then a kind of swooping in uh, gentrification that um, that that really uh, puts these assets, whether we're talking about a community park or a school or or or, or public housing or affordable housing at risk. Right. Um, and I think it's it's part of the conversation today um, in Chicago. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate that you are starting that conversation and really diving deep into this history. And also really, I think oftentimes we talk in white and black terms when we talk about housing discrimination. And I think it's really important that you're focusing on the Mexican community in the city. I know that one of my friends who I work with at the ACLU is a Mexican from Chicago, and she grew up in these neighborhoods, and it meant a lot for her to see um, your work. So really appreciate all that you're doing, and and thank you for helping us break some of this down. Uh, So thanks. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, Kendall, for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. 